If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What does God look like? Well, in her recent book, God and Anatomy, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, professor of the Hebrew Bible and ancient religion at the University of Exeter, tries to answer this question. She goes back to very early depictions of the God worshipped by early Christians and Jews. Francesca offers up an anatomy of this deity, uncovering a much more tangible figure than the formless God most Christians and Jews think of today. Her book has been shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize, and I spoke to her to find out more. Your book, God and Anatomy, has been shortlisted for this year's Wolfson History Prize, so congratulations. And the winner of that prize will be announced on the 22nd of June. So to get us going in this conversation, could you introduce us to the book and what you're aiming to do with it? The book basically tells the very early career of God, if you like. So the God who is described in the Bible, the God of Judaism and Christianity today. But what I argue in the book is that the God of Judaism and Christianity is in some ways a post-biblical God. These religions um, evolved out of a very long, complex history from the Iron Age um, down into the Roman period. So the God of 
the Bible as he's presented is actually better understood as an ancient Southwest Asian deity. Um, and he's a deity who, like most gods across the ancient world, was understood to be corporeal in form. He was understood to have a human-shaped body. And he was a member of a pantheon of deities who sort of slowly rose to the top of that pantheon in ancient Israel. So that's what I've tried to do in the book. Um, and I tried to explain why it was so important that ancient gods were understood to have bodies. So you're tracing the God that we think of for Christianity and Judaism today, right back to ancient Israel. Mm -hmm. What sources are you using? What are the earliest sources we have on God? <laughs> well, that's a complicated question. Um, I'm drawing on lots of um, biblical texts, um, so Hebrew texts and Greek texts, some Aramaic texts as well. Um, I'm also drawing a lot of archaeology, um, so visual culture, but also some ancient inscriptions, Hebrew inscriptions, um, and a lot of cognate material from other ancient societies in the Levant. So places like um, what we would identify today as Syria, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Egypt, etc. You're tracing this figure all the way back to a deity called Yahweh, if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. What can you tell us about him? Yahweh originally started off as a minor deity who was probably understood to be um, a storm god. So we had weapons of thunder and lightning and rainstorms, etc. Some of the earliest Hebrew poetry that we have in the Bible itself suggests that he started off yeah, as a wilderness god, a god on a high mountain in a wilderness, not located in the Sinai Peninsula, um, as we sort of tend to think of today, but probably located somewhere in what would be called in biblical um, terms, Edom, but we would now identify as Southern Jordan. So this kind of hot desert wilderness. Um, he came from there. He was understood to be one of the, the sons of the high god who was called Ale, which is basically a Semitic term that means deity. And Ale was the high god of a lot of these ancient Levantine pantheons. But gradually, gradually, and we don't quite know how, but gradually, gradually, Yahweh took on the roles and titles and functions of the high god Ale to become the head of these local pantheons in the ancient uh, kingdom of Israel and the ancient kingdom of Judah. You said we don't quite know how he took on these functions, but was there anything about the figure of Yahweh that was distinct from the rest of this pantheon of gods that meant that he really became the one focus? And not so much about the, his figure, but more about the relationship that he had with his worshippers. This is all about having a social relationship with the deity, um, which is one of the reasons why gods were understood to have bodies, because it's very difficult to have a social relationship with an abstract or, dare I say it, an imaginary being. So how do you kind of conjure, imagine, within a religious context, this deity with whom you have a relationship? And so that's why they were understood to have bodies like we do. So it's not so much that Yahweh had a particular characteristic that that rendered him more likely to become the head of the pantheon. It's really about his relationship with particular worshippers. So at the end of the Late Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age, so we're talking around 1000 BCE, you get the emergence of various city-states in the lands that we now identify with modern Israel and Palestine. And these were very much states that were constructed politically around notions of kingship, political power, statehood, and these particular kings claimed a personal relationship with Yahweh, um, that the name Yahweh is embedded into a lot of their personal names. So it suggests that 
this deity was almost like the patron deity of these particular powerful kings and their families and, and all the sort of scribes and and soldiers associated with them. And so that's really why this deity came to be gradually identified with the high god. And the format of your book, as you've mentioned, is really an anatomy. You break down the body, the corporeal form of this god, um, to look at what what he looked like, essentially. So that that's my next question, really. What did he look like? <laughs> well, yeah, so the book begins, um, I basically do this almost like a it's a bit like a striptease of the deity. <laughs> I start I start with his feet and I work my way up his body to his face. And his body changes, his visual appearance, if you like, changes over many, many centuries. So in the earliest period, he was very much understood to be this very hyper-masculine, muscular, good-looking deity with um, a very dark beard, beautifully groomed beard and dark hair um, and this red sort of glowing skin. You know, he was a dazzling deity in that sense. For various reasons, many of which were un- understood to be related to his identification with his father, Ale, who was understood to be a, a senior god with a white beard and grey hair, his appearance gradually changes. So by the time we get to the second century BCE and the book of Daniel, we get this description of the god Yahweh, not as this kind of younger, sort of strapping, dark-haired, good-looking deity, but he's now taken on the sort of the grey-haired, white-bearded features of his of his senior father. Um, and that whiteness was also associated with holiness. Um, and so in some ways, it's a an increasingly transcendent reconfiguration, if you like, of, of the visual appearance of the deity. How significant is it that he was imagined firstly as a man and secondly, as you say, um, in later iterations as a white man? Well, obviously it has huge repercussions in terms of the ways in which these biblical texts have been used as authoritative literature within our own cultures. So in terms of gender, I think it's very easy to rely on later, the, the later disembodiment of God, to say that God is immaterial, incorporeal, God doesn't have a body, therefore God cannot have a sex or a gender. But in his ancient context, um, he was very much understood to be male and to be masculine. And his body functioned in a way that gave divine authority to men. And that was an authority that was um, used in terms of power, social power, political power, physical power, sexual power over women. In Genesis, you know, we're told that God made man in his own image. And we need to take that language quite seriously. Um, Humans had had God-shaped bodies. (laughs) God's had human-shaped bodies. But men were understood to be um, closer reflections, if you like, of the deity himself. And in terms of God's red, dazzling skin increasingly turned brighter and whiter. And in certain cultural contexts, particularly within the first few centuries of Christianity, this gave whiteness and the notion of embodied whiteness a divine um, prestige. And it lent itself throughout the course of Christianity, but particularly during um, the emergence of of the various imperial states within Europe, it, it, it gave almost a divine legitimacy to the division of peoples in terms of skin colour. And whiteness was associated with a cosmic supremacy, a divinely endorsed supremacy, um, that 
people of colour and were not given, were not understood to, to have. You have an entire chapter on God's feet. Why were God's feet so interesting? <laughs> <laughs> There's an incredible temple in Ayandara in Syria, um, which dates back to the Iron Age and is shaped very much like the temple, we understand the Temple of Jerusalem would have looked in the Iron Age, so the temple supposedly built by Solomon. Um, and it has these incredible meter-long divine footprints carved into the temple floor. And it shows these two feet paired very neatly on the threshold of the temple and then one footprint as if the deity has, has you know, taken a big step into the heart of the temple and then another footprint as if the deity's taken a step further into the Holy of Holies, which was located at the very back of the temple. Now, that kind of archaeological visual evidence is really helpful because it helps to clarify why in the Bible itself, Yahweh often refers to the Jerusalem temple as the place for the soles of my feet, the place I will set my feet, the place where my feet will be placed forever. Um, and so I start with the notion of God's feet primarily because it helps us to understand some of this literature in the biblical texts, but also to make the point that the very social presence of the deity in the earthly realm was manifested by his feet. You know, he wasn't kind of hovering above <laughs> in the clouds. Um, he was actually very much firmly placed and present um, within the earthly realm in his temples, which were understood to be the meeting place of the divine and, and earthly realms. But the deity was very much corporally, bodily, um, presenced there, if you like. And in these ancient texts, there are descriptions of encounters with God. What do they say it would have been like to to look into the face of God? Oh, it's hugely dangerous. So to see the face of a deity um, was basically to, on the one hand, to, to risk death. So we get various traditions that talk about how dangerous it is to see to see a deity. And this isn't just the, the biblical God. This is gods across ancient Southwest Asia. Um, but we also, on the other hand, have traditions in which worshippers could look upon the face of the deity. Yahweh, like many other gods across ancient Southwest Asia, was often not just represented by cult statues in his temples, um, but manifest in these statues. And so to look upon a statue like this was to gaze into the face of God. And this God was understood to be devastatingly handsome, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Um, and I think it reflects that very fine balance that we find in ancient myths and traditions, a fine balance between um, religious awe and sexual allure to a certain extent. Um, so to look upon the face of the deity was a, an extraordinary privilege, not least because temples were exclusive spaces. They weren't used by ordinary people. Um, they were very much high status buildings that they kind of functioned almost like a royal chapel would function um, in later forms of Christianity. So yeah, to look upon the face of a deity was a huge privilege. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's shaped so many of our Western cultural preferences and traditions. You know, whether we're believers or not, the Bible is a cultural icon in Western cultures. And I mean icon in, in its very truest sense. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you were reconstructing this anatomy of God from early biblical texts, is there anything that you think people might be surprised that you uncovered? There are some bits that I really enjoyed writing about. You know, God gets belly aches, you know, <laughs> he gets tummy ache. Within an ancient Southwest Asian cultural context, the belly and the internal organs, the intestines and the bowels were understood to be the seat of, a, of emotion. The heart was, by contrast, understood to be a cognitive organ. That's where sort of the intellectual decision making and and um, and wisdom were, were held. So the belly was very much the seat of emotions. And so quite often when we find this deity sort of struggling with various difficult situations, you know, should he flood the world or not? Um, should he punish his worshippers by bringing in Babylonian armies against them? Um, he gets bellyache. So that, that, I really enjoyed writing about that. One of the other surprising things, I guess, some people is that God is not only presented as very masculine and as male, um, he's also obviously presented as having male genitalia. He was understood by his ancient Israelite and early Jewish worshippers to be circumcised. But this was also a sexualized deity. This was a deity who was understood to have both a wife, the goddess Asherah, and in some biblical texts, he's even portrayed as having a sexual relationship with female figures. So that's pretty unsettling for a lot of ancient readers as well as modern readers today but that's what the ancient worshippers understood their their deity to, to be like as you say this is obviously a really different representation of god that many people would have today how similar are ancient biblical texts to the bible that you might pick up you know in a hotel room today in some ways they're very similar so some of these biblical traditions do reflect ancient Iron Age and into the sort of um, Persian period and, and Greco-Roman period, they do reflect those, the sorts of texts that were in circulation among Yahweh worshipping communities. But on the other hand, these texts were very, very unstable. They were very fluid. They were not fixed and they weren't fixed for many, many centuries. So there are differences, for example, between um, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, between the version of the Torah, perhaps that was circulating around northern 
Egypt um, and the version that was circulating around the Eastern Mediterranean in the time of Jesus, for example. So they were very sort of unstable texts to a certain extent. One of the things that really impacts our, our sense of the ways in which we approach these texts is that, you know, all all translations are interpretations. And so the ways in which these texts have been translated today, both within Jewish and Christian tradition, has tends to reflect the theological and ideological and cultural preferences of those translators. And so sometimes the translations that we're used to seeing are very misrepresentative of their ancient contexts. So it gives you an incredibly tricky job as a historian then. Yeah, I mean, it's so important, you know, obviously to to read the Hebrew, to read the Greek and the Aramaic and various other ancient languages that can help us to better understand the ways in which certain terms and phrases and motifs um, and metaphors were used in these ancient cultures. So how did this physical god become divested of his body and, and transform into this formless god that most Christians and Jews would recognise today? There are two reasons. Well, there are lots of complicated reasons, but there are two main reasons why this deity was gradually disembodied. The first was that cult statues themselves are very vulnerable to being looted. Um, Godnapping was very common in in the ancient world. And so when invading armies came in and destroyed temples, as we know, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed um, by the Babylonians in the 6th century BCE. Um, So they would carry off the statues of gods um, and sort of say that the gods were not necessarily being taken hostage, but were going on um, sort of a pilgrimage to go and honour the victorious deity. So in that sense, there was a very huge shift away from material depictions of Yahweh himself, which is what's reflected in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make an image. But the second reason is that from the closing centuries of the first millennium BCE, you get the, the increasing influence of primarily platonic philosophical ideas in which the divine was understood to be true if it was truly divine the divine had to be completely other from anything in the universe so it had to be immaterial unchanging and indivisible so bodies for example can be divided you know you can lop legs and arms off for example similarly the universe could be divided between the heavenly earthly um, realms and the underworld Um, the seas could be divided from the land. So the impact of this very pervasive philosophical view, it wasn't the only philosophical view that was circulating around at the time, but it it became the most dominant and the most important. And it's that that gradually started to reshape early Jewish and Christian ideas about the nature of the deity. And And so gradually he became increasingly disembodied. And what about the emergence of the figure of Jesus? How did that impact on the way that people saw God? I think for early Christian theologians who were both struggling with the fact that among worshippers, many still believe that God had a body. Um, the church father Origen is, is livid. He's rails against people that say, how can these people think that God has this huge body with his head in the heavens and his feet that stretch to the earth? So a lot of people still understood that God had a body, but theologically and ideologically, what became most important to these early church fathers was the notion of the exclusivity of the claims that they were making about Christ. And they argued that Christ was the only embodiment of the divine because you know their whole theology rested on that that god had to have a body in order for it to be destroyed to be resurrected and to ascend back into the heavenly realm again so for them it was about the exclusivity 
of divine embodiment. It could only be embodied by Christ. I think a lot of people will be familiar when you said uh, this kind of image of God as an old man with a big white beard. That will ring bells in people's heads. But are there any religious groups that keep up this really strongly embodied image of God today? There are some um, religious groups. I mean, um, the Church of Latter-day Saints, which is a, a an offshoot of Christianity, very much has at its heart the sense that that the deity is embodied, that God has a body. There are other, in terms of the visual cultures of Christianity within certain Eastern Orthodox traditions, you still find this um, kind of melding of the, you know, we tend to look at images of Christ as having this kind of, you know, this darker beard um, and dark hair, you know, as a sort of a relatively youthful bearded man. But in some Eastern Orthodox iconographic communities and traditions, this is a, a the Christ is often portrayed as having the white beard and the white hair of this kind of father God figure. So you still get this kind of melding and this kind of movement between these different sorts of understandings of, of God's visual appearance. And the God that you present here, obviously, as you say, is a very different understanding to what many religious communities have today. What response have you had to the book from religious communities? The same kind of response, to be honest, that I get in in most of the um, in most of the things that I do in a public arena. Some people are absolutely thrilled to be given the opportunity to learn more about um, the ancient origins of their religion and the ancient origins of their deity and can and they can and it sits very comfortably with them they're, they're very happy to kind of almost compartmentalize the historical cultural context of of this deity with their own faith in this deity on the other hand I do get a lot of hate mail <laughs> um, I get a lot of very angry people who accuse me of everything from blasphemy to um, consorting with the devil and say that this is completely, A, that I've got it completely wrong and that I can't possibly understand the nature of this deity because I happen to be an atheist, and B, that I have no right to defame and denigrate the sacred religious traditions. Um, so the response has been has been mixed. But, you know, I'd rather people were talking about it than sort of just, you know, than just not being interested at all in, in what a historian has to say about this ancient deity. Hate mail aside, what are some of the challenges of being, as you say, an atheist academic working on a subject that's so incredibly dear to many people's hearts? I'd like to think, at least, that what I do is respectful of people's faiths and um, beliefs. I'd like to think that I, I communicate and engage with religious readers and, and you know, viewers of my TV stuff um, in a way that's that's not seem to be offensive or belittling you know it's just you know there are lots of different ways of being in the world and so in some ways those Jewish and Christian people today who who you know continue to have a social relationship with this deity you know they're no better or worse than than I am and their way of being in the world is no better or worse and you know similarly the ancient worshippers of this god we shouldn't look down on on their religious culture as somehow primitive or unsophisticated that's just a different way of being with the world so yeah I, I think I'd like to think that I may be an atheist but I'd like to think that I'm a sensitive atheist my final question to you is just why this is so interesting to study why does it matter what God looked like or even whether he had a body or not I hugely I mean not least because it's shaped so many of our western cultural preferences and traditions you know whether we're believers or not the bible is 
a cultural icon in Western cultures. And I mean icon in in its very truest sense, you know, it's this kind of very powerful object in our societies. And I think it's really important to be able to interrogate and critique and also nuance the cultures that gave rise to, to this very powerful text. So that when you get a politician like, for example, you know, a couple of years ago, Donald Trump, who's stands there, you know, waving a Bible around and saying that, you know, this is what matters. We need to be able to understand the cultures and contexts in which those authoritative texts emerge. So it still has a huge role and impact on our society. So it is an important text to talk about in that sense. And the God at the heart of those texts is really important to reveal (laughs) in terms of his anatomical and cultural framing. Um, So that is what I hope I've done in this book. That was Francesca Stavrakopoulou, Professor of the Hebrew Bible and Ancient Religion at the University of Exeter. Her book, God and Anatomy, is out now, and it's one of the books shortlisted for this year's Wolfson History Prize, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of June. We've spoken to all the other shortlisted authors on this podcast on subjects including toppled statues, witches and the Ottoman Empire. You can find links to those pods at historyextra.com forward slash Wolfson. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.